It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 123. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. So, Gary, last week we rounded up 2020. We were all yeah. very, very happy to see it over. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it turns out, it just it took me a couple of days, and I realized that there was something that we had talked about on the podcast repeatedly throughout 2020 that didn't make the cut, apparently, or we just didn't think about. Now, I will give you the clue. Okay, yeah. That Randy would have thought about it. Oh, so I'm going, can I make a guess or do Please you want to? Uh, it's all the accomplishments of SpaceX. Exactly. Uh-huh, yes. I'm shocked that we overlooked that, to be honest, just because yeah. in a year where there were so many odd things happening and, and you know, just it, in a year that was a dumpster fire in so many other ways, um, SpaceX had so many really cool, really interesting events. They accomplished so much um, that uh, it, they, they, it really does just warrant even though this is, you know, not the wrap-up podcast for the year, uh, we actually should acknowledge the fact that uh, that they were an important part of 2020, and it's not to be overlooked. Yeah, yeah, major leaps forward for private uh, spaceflight. Um, not just once, um, but twice, which I thought was pretty. You know, yeah, just being able to pull that off twice. Going to space from American soil and an American rocket, yep. um, which is, you know, I I don't want to be all nationalistic or whatever about it but uh, it's important i guess to say that there you know limited number of countries can do that yes and for a long time the united states has been off of that list right right and, <laughs> and dependent and on another on. country um that i'm yeah. sure will come up in today's conversation as well but the interesting thing is that um i'm with you i mean nationalism aside uh the more countries we have doing the capable of doing this kind of stuff Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, the better it is, you know, exploration to me is a, is a very, very good thing. Getting out in space and learning what we can and doing the things we can only do in space is a good thing. But yep. at a very pragmatic level, um, the more countries you have capable of space flight, the more opportunities or the more resources you have should say something go wrong. Um, mm-hmm. I always, the, the, the one that, that bothered me the most is, um, uh, Basically, you know, what happens if something goes wrong at the space station? Yes, they've got an escape capsule, but what if you need to send somebody up there? And, you know, just any number of different things. And um, I would hope, I mean, we know that the Russians can dock with it. We know that we can now dock with it uh, in a couple of different ways, because I think that even the Boeing um, uh, rocket is intended to dock at the space station. Um, I don't know if the Chinese can dock with it or not. I would kind of sort of hope so. Um, But that's one of those things where... um, you know, even even in a worst case scenario where they don't have that kind of capability, um, you know, a rescue mission could be a spacewalk. So there's so I mean, it's just having having more. We've got more options now than we ever had before, and I think it's very cool. And just the fact that they're doing things like reusing rockets and um, you know building uh, an actual uh, space capsule from scratch that looks like something out of the 2020s rather than the <laughs> 1970s um, is is a very cool thing. And um, also a, a shout out to the to the other effort of uh, the uh, uh, the larger rocket, um, the name is actually slipping my tongue right now, but it's um, um, the one that they sent up. You know, maybe what three five thousand feet, and then let it come back to ground. Yeah, yeah, the one that looks like it's from the nineteen fifties. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. On the outside, on yeah. the inside, it's presumably no, they, going to be much more modern. Yes, but, I'm sure. And I think I mentioned uh, when we did talk about this one last year that. Um, it's really misleading because it 
doesn't look as big as I believe it really is. Well, it's just the top. That's the test was the top right. of the rocket. So they're going to put that on top of what a that, Falcon Super that, Heavy or something. Starliner, right? That's yeah. it. So that is the Starliner itself. That goes on top of a massive rocket that then gets it up. So you know that test of it going up five thousand feet or whatever it was. That's testing basically it going into orbit, even though it's closer to ground. It sits on top of like the the Falcon Huge or whatever is whatever, above yeah. the Falcon Heavy. When they actually put it on top of that thing, I mean, I think it's going to be it might be the biggest rocket ever. I don't know if it's bigger than that Soviet one that you know they used to launch heavy payloads right. um, back in the day. But uh, it's it's massive. So yeah, that was just the top, like the very top part. <laughs> interesting, interesting, yeah. and it, it, it all by itself, it's pretty darn huge. Now it's kind of sad that it blew up the last time they <laughs> they landed, well, it. but yeah, they learned I mean, so much. I mean, so much about that exercise worked, right? It's they 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 were able to to confirm a whole bunch of different things about the design and the flight yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So, well, these test rockets, you know, tes uh, Tesla, <laughs> SpaceX has said that basically when they test rockets like this, they test them until they fail. Right. In other words, if that landed perfectly, there would have been another test a week or two later where they would have pushed it further. Right. And they would have kept doing that until eventually it exploded. That rocket was never meant to survive. Right. It was meant to keep pushing until they learned something through failure so that they could then, you know, uh, improve the next version. Yep. Yep. So, so cool. You're it's right. funny. There's, there's a, a headline running around. Um, I haven't read the article, but it, it seems to imply that uh, Musk said something to the effect of uh, landing rockets is too easy. Hmm. And what they want to do next time is um, rather than have, not, I don't know about next time, but eventually, rather than having landing struts on mm -hmm. the rocket itself, mm -hmm. take those off and then have it land onto as best I can figure, some kind of socket, <laughs> right? Wow. So it's actually landing onto stationary struts. Um, that too would be very, very interesting to that see. That would save weight on the rocket. Exactly. And would, I think that's would, the idea. The, the, the rocket itself becomes less complex. Yeah, you don't have to carry that. Complex. Yep. Yeah, you don't have to carry those struts up and then, you know, use them in or you know, not use them in orbit and bring them back down, right. you know, if you don't have them. But then, of course, your accuracy for your landing point uh, becomes even more critical. But, you know, and they've proven that, at least with the Falcon rockets, that they can get pretty darn close um, to, you know, where they intended to go. So, yeah, there's a lot of hope there. Cool. Anyway. Um, so speaking of um, overseas, and I'm actually not going to mention the country, even though everybody knows what it is, because I think this is actually a bigger issue. Um, everybody's been talking about the solar winds hack, mm -hmm. and for our uh, for our listener, the this is um, a hack that became apparent, I think, a couple of weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and it's one of those things that has turned out to affect. Uh, many, many high-profile countries and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, companies and government agencies. And basically, they are still finding out just how pervasive this hack is. The thing that makes the hack interesting, to me at any rate, and the reason I'm actually going to say it's a good thing, is because it's actually highlighting something that has come up occasionally in our discussions, actually around, usually around the uh, um, COVID-19 uh, supply chain. And that is the supply chain. The fact is 
solar winds itself, whatever it is, wasn't necessarily hacked. These companies weren't hacked. What happened was upstream, some component of the equipment or some library of the software that is used for these devices uh, was actually compromised. And then, apparently a fair amount of time ago, and then very slowly as various other manufacturers updated and started using either this hardware or software. Again, I'm not completely clear on exactly what it is. Um, that compromised software made its way into other places. Um, in in the, the personal world, in, in, in you know, the home world, it'd be the equivalent of somebody making a change to one of the libraries used by Linux that was only used by routers, but was used by a lot of routers. And very slowly as routers updated their software or new routers were created with this software, that malicious or that compromised software made its way through and into these devices. And then eventually at some point, the person behind that malicious software would pull the trigger and say, okay, great, our software is on all of these routers. Let's go see what we can find. And then they find out who's been, who actually is running the software and who they can then turn around and make a high profile, high value target. This is the same kind of idea, only much, much, much larger. Um, Microsoft has uh, apparently admitted that their network was compromised. And I find that particularly fascinating. It is to my knowledge, the first time the Microsoft corporate network has ever been breached from the outside. I could be wrong, but this is certainly a high profile case of that. And they've admitted that um, hackers could potentially have had access to at least viewing source code to Microsoft products. Now, the good news, of course, is that Microsoft claims that's we design with that in mind, right? There's no secrets in our source code. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like the open source model, right? The issue with Linux is everybody can see the source code, um, the the you know, which means everybody can see all of its warts, which means there are fewer warts, or at least in theory, there are fewer warts. Mm -hmm. um, Microsoft tries to do the same thing not necessarily for external consumption, but since it is such a large, large company, um, that internal visibility is incredibly important to them and I'm sure improves the quality of the code. So they're not really all that concerned about hackers potentially having seen their source code. But what it really does indicate is that a company as high profile as Microsoft or governments, as, you know, the government departments as high profile as some of them are, um, having been hacked, having been... Again, I keep saying that they've been hacked, but in reality, they haven't been hacked. Right. It was way upstream in the supply chain where a device or a piece of software got hacked and got compromised, and it's now making its way um, into the field, into all these different places. These, you know, Microsoft, I'm sure, was not targeted. Uh, the government agencies that got hit probably were not targeted. Mm -hmm. It's more a matter of let's throw this in there to a device that we know is being used by an awful lot of different companies around the world. And let's see what turns up. A fishing and, expedition. In, in a sense, yes, a very, a very big, very quiet fishing expedition that finally got caught. And it's what's to me, what's interesting about that is that, you know, at some point, like I said, they kind of pull a trigger and say, okay, who's on the line? What have we got? And then they choose from all of these different companies that they now have um, uh, backdoor access to, which ones they want to do something with. 
And we, at this time, really don't know the full extent both of which companies were, uh, were compromised and what anybody did with any of the information that they may have discovered through that compromise. Now, the reason I say it's a good thing is that the supply chain matters. And it's really, really easy to overlook all of the different components that go into the devices and the systems that we use and take for granted every single day. Um, you know this, Gary. I mean, you, you know, there are libraries of software out there, open source even, uh, that, yeah, somebody could theoretically, you know, throw something in there. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, it would be caught by other eyes. But again, theoretically, that isn't necessarily guaranteed. Uh, that kind of thing in software is happening in hardware as well, as we see we have this massive reliance on overseas manufacturers of various components with varying levels of trust. Uh, it's one of the reasons that Huawei is, is being actively discouraged from selling equipment in the United States because the United States government doesn't trust the Chinese-owned uh, company uh, because we don't know what they could be doing to the chips th that are becoming part of our cell phones. Even the U.S.-sold, U.S.-brand cell phones have components that are manufactured overseas. So I just I like the idea that it's shedding a light on an important part of the development, design, and manufacturing process that I think is so easy to overlook. Mm -hmm. What about you? What do you think, Gary? Yeah, I think you know, in some ways, um, the the flaw in the attack really was the fact that it was too wide, right? By putting it in, you know, some library somewhere that then was all over the place. I believe it was first discovered in pretty benign places. Um, some companies found that, you know, that it was there and then backtracked from that and said, well, wait a minute, if it's on in our systems, that means it's in on these other company systems. And oh no, that means it's in these government systems as well. So a narrower attack, if that's even possible, uh, may not have been discovered. Right, right. But given the type of attack that this is, an upstream yeah. supply chain attack, you don't really have the opportunity to, to target necessarily exactly. where these devices are going. Um, you may know, for example, that Microsoft uses X device. So that yeah. means you can backtrace all the components for that device. And by compromising that device, Microsoft might be one of the companies that you mm -hmm, end up mm -hmm. being able to gain access to, but it's certainly not a guarantee. And, and again, given that these are existing devices and we all know how software updates work, people take them, people don't take them. They take them at random times, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. This is, this is a long game, right? This is one of those things oh, sure. where these folks have been um, uh, playing a very patient, very long waiting game to see where the fruits of their effort might turn up. Well, yeah. And so what I'm trying to say is basically its strength is also its weakness. It's strength in, you know, being able to, okay, let's put it here and wait and see what we get mm -hmm. by having it here. Also then turns out to be a weakness because then it's going to end up in places where somebody's going to notice it. Right. And then once somebody notices it, then they can go and say, okay, now wait a minute. If we found it, here in this software, then it's also probably in these other places. Now it's kind of, you know, it can be identified. The secret is out. Right. So the very nature of the attack, it's not the specific attack that had this weakness, but the nature of uh, this kind of attack is also what makes it kind of a weak attack. Um, 
so it's not, you know, it's like, okay, what happens the next time somebody tries to do this? Well, the next time somebody tries to do this, it's going to be the same strength and the same weakness. Um, and hopefully it'll be even more of a weakness because, um, you know, it'll be looked out for a little more. I was going to say, well, uh, I'll be paying a little bit closer attention. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. In, in one sense, it's kind of interesting that um, it got as far as it did. Yeah, that is kind of one of the alarming things. I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe it was discovered at just the just the right time or went on way too far or maybe it, maybe this could have gone on for years more if somebody hadn't gotten lucky and noticed something so but uh yeah it's it's uh it's disturbing but there's for people like even people like you and me let alone like the most people there's really not much you could do about it it's something for oh, the exactly yeah there's nothing we can do about it but it's i can't i definitely have heard from a couple of my readers for example with questions about it um and it is one of those things where even at that global level at that really high level of of large companies getting hacked um, there are some interesting ramifications to the to the individual user, not from that specific attack, but from the kinds of things that they might want to be wary of the next time they buy a router. Yeah. Um, you know, it reminds me of a book I read not too long ago, and I wish I could remember the name of the book. I'm trying to search for the name of the book, but I probably won't come up with it. Um, oh, no, I, I do. Blind Man's Bluff was the name of the book, um, and it was about submarine espionage. So, you know, this is before computers, uh, mm -hmm. there were uh, undersea cables uh, all around the world. And the thing with these undersea cables is different countries use them for military uh, communications. And what we would do, and also what the Soviets would do, uh, would be to send down submarines to find these cables and tap them right and you know uh i mean i think the book suggests that we did this first long before the soviets did maybe they caught up but i mean there were there were cables that uh say you know were laid underneath the you know from korea into russia and uh you know allowing military communications to travel across uh you know in the days where a radio communication could of course be easily intercepted. You don't right. need anything special for that. You just need to be able to decrypt it afterwards. Um, but these cable communications, first of all, were thought maybe they don't need to be decrypted, you know, encrypted at all, because how could somebody possibly, right. Right. <laughs> you know, get, so sometimes they were sent in the clear and other times they were sent with very weak encryption. Um, and, you know, the idea that, you know, we'd have submarines go and find these cables, which seemed almost to be impossible, uh, you know, to do, to find an undersea cable when you have no inf real information about where it is. You weren't right. the person who put the cable there. So you have to kind of guess where this cable is and to find these cables and find many of them and then attach devices to them. And then those devices basically would record what was coming across the cable. And then you'd have to collect the recorder. It's not like they transmitted them to you or whatever, right, you know. So right. you'd have like basically a year's worth of data on a recorder stored in some sort of magnetic tape format, you know, from this device that was under the ocean for a year. Um, and it was kind of incredible. And this this went on for years and years and years on both sides, uh, tapping these cables. And, you know, now we move forward to 2020. And basically, we've got that kind of thing going on. Yep. Where yep. we've got these, uh, you know, it's, it takes place inside the internet, basically, uh, with data being, you know, the, these are the cable taps, and they're put in certain places. And 
Uh, yep, that's a really that's a really good model. It's funny too because something you said, you know, that you know the U.S. was doing it, Soviets were doing it. Yeah. Um, this is classic espionage, right? This is yeah. this is the kind of stuff that uh, you know your cable tapping would have been a Bond movie sometime in the back, right? And and even now, you know, tapping into the internet, sure, lots of mystery movies are all about that kind of stuff. The 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 interesting thing that I find is that once again we run into people that are. I have a certain amount of outrage that you know this other country would do such a thing to us without realizing that no, oh, yeah. it's mutual, right? Yeah, We're doing sure. it to each other. Espionage, um, yeah. It's, it's nothing new. Uh, espionage is absolutely nothing new. And uh, only the tools have changed. So Yes. And it's not just, uh, let's say, adversaries doing it to each other. Friendly nations do it to each other as well. True. So, True. And that's been going on for a long time long time as well uh, too so yeah it's uh it's interesting and also to note that you know there's a lot of information is gathered either whether it's a submarine cable tap or the uh you know this breach here you know on the internet but it's not all used because if you start using it then you show to sort of show your hand yes so you kind of uh, hold on the information also the idea that you could tamper with things that's also something that kind of shows your hand. Right. Um, I'm sure they thought during the submarine cable taps, hey, we could send messages probably, you know, but as soon as that happens, what, it's going to be a three days and they'll realize that right. their that's cable's been compromised. Yep. Right. Yep. And it's the same thing here. It's like, as soon as they, if they try to tamper with data, then it's like, well, then we lose this entire network that's giving us tons of information. And the same thing is if, they try to use that information, then it's like, well, then we comp. So you, you have to, I don't know. It's a, it's a very interesting business. Yep. Uh, SP, information espionage. It's a anyway. chess, chess game all to itself. Anyway, yep. so I've got a, there'll be a, a links to a couple of articles in the show notes. One from ZDNet, solar winds, the more we learn, the worse it looks. And I suspect we will be looking for some time before we really understand the full, uh, the full, uh, extent of what's been compromised. And then um, also an article from the New York Times, hacking likely came from Russia, U.S. says, in belated official statement on a major intrusion, which um, is actually a nicely understated <laughs> uh, uh, headline. So anyway, yep. I just thought that was interesting. And like I said, I, I look for the good here. And the good is I think we're going to start paying attention to something we should be paying attention to. Yep. So switching what you got for us, Gary? yeah. So this is uh, this is a fairly momentous uh, time here for me um, because of uh, something going on. Uh, Flash, Adobe Flash, formerly Macromedia Flash, uh, is is being buried right now. It's oh, died. It's died, know. and it's being buried. Yep. Um, and a lot of people, uh, our listener, may not realize that uh, I'm very involved with this. Uh, I never worked for Adobe or Macromedia, but was pretty close to, you know, uh, for somebody to not work there, pretty close to them. Um, uh, I used Flash a lot to build the games that were on my websites, which was kind of the main thing I did for a long, long time. Uh, I started with Macromedia Director, which was a completely different program, and that created a web plugin called Shockwave, which was a different thing than Flash, but that was the first thing that allowed you to put web games inside of web pages and I used that for a few years and then when flash kind of took over the newer technology um, I used flash and starting around 1999 started creating flash games putting them putting them on web pages and for the next 10 years created hundreds of flash games um, for myself for my websites also for other companies 
Uh, I wrote books on Flash games, uh, how to program them. Uh, so it, it, it was a big deal because before Flash and before Shockwave, uh, the game distribution model was very different. This was way before apps, mobile apps. So if you were if you wanted to be a computer game developer, basically you could program all you wanted, but nobody was going to really get your game unless you had a distribution method, right. like getting it boxed up and put into stores. Um, there was a tiny distribution method called shareware where you could download stuff online, but it was not a big, big model. Uh, and then putting them on web pages came along and suddenly became very easy. You could create a game, stick it on a web page, on a website, and people could play it. And I really uh, was hooked into this world, uh, helped really create it. Uh, you know, I, I, I created hundreds of games myself, but I can't, uh, you know, imagine all the different books I wrote on Flash game programming, how many games had a piece of my code in them right. or were right. created by somebody that maybe learned something from one of my books. Uh, so it was a big deal for me for a long time. Um, and up until uh, December 31st, all of those games that I created on, that were on my sites were still available to be played if you had Flash installed on your computer. Um, and now they're gone because uh, Flash... Uh, was discontinued by Adobe. Um, and they actually, you know, announced this several years ago. Right. And the all they did for the last few years with Flash was some security updates, no new features or anything like that. So, you know, they they pegged uh, December 31st, 2020 as the as the end of life for Flash. Uh, it already kind of died a lot because uh, mobile browsers never really had Flash. So it's more of the web was browsed by people on mobile devices. Flash kind of became irrelevant, um, but it had its uses. Um, Didn't it also, uh, Safari also remove it at some point uh, it, sooner? It was just, uh, yeah, well, I mean, they completely removed it not too long ago. Oh, okay. But it was difficult to install. You know, you had to go through the steps, unlike Chrome, which actually made it really easy to continue right. uh, with Flash and did it in a much more secure way. Um, Flash had its advantages. One was that it was basically a complete development environment, you know, encapsulated inside of this browser plugin, which made it extremely powerful. I mean, you could literally build an operating system in Flash, build apps for that operating system and have that all running inside Flash. You know, it was very powerful. Mm -hmm. But that power also made it uh, very vulnerable to security issues. If you could do just about anything with it, that meant that people that wanted to do bad things with it could. <laughs> um, and they did, which made it uh, a security problem. Uh, and Adobe had to constantly patch security issues with it to keep it safe for you to use on, on your um, browser. Strangely enough, the major security problem with Flash actually had nothing to do with Flash. It was simply that the name Flash was appropriated by a lot of malware and used as uh, kind of like phishing where you know you go to a web page and it says, oh, you need to update your Flash to ah, view this content. Right. And there was nothing to do with Flash or Adobe. It was, you know, if you click that link, you were taken to something right. that was not Flash at all, and you downloaded and gave it permission to install and had nothing to do with Flash. You could have said you needed Microsoft Word to do this, or you need right. you know, Mac whatever to do this. You know, media but, encoders is another yeah. one, or is another one that media was, uh, coder, yeah. yeah. And they just used Flash because it was the easiest, it was the one where 
people were most likely to say, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense yeah. uh, that I need uh, to update my flash to view the content on a web page. So, so that was kind of an, an unfortunate thing. You know, whoever was kind of king of the browser plugins was bound to be in that position of vulnerability. Um, and that was flash. So, uh, yeah, it, it's sad to see it go because it did give a lot of power for uh, people like me or just about anybody to create cool things, whether they were games or other forms of entertainment, animation, storytelling, uh, or interesting apps, information apps, and things like that, and put them onto a web page where they could be distributed easily. You don't have to get them in stores. You didn't have to get a publishing deal, nothing. You just put it on your webpage and now you had this app that you built. You didn't even have to get it into an app store like you do with a mobile phone uh, system. So uh, so I used it to build lots and lots of games and, and now it's gone. One of the confusing things is exactly uh, what's going to happen on January 12th because up until New Year's Day, all we knew was, you know, Adobe said, we're done with this. We're done with Flash on December 31st. And the, my feeling was that Flash wasn't going to stop working. They would just, you know, you wouldn't be able to download it anymore. It would be impossible to get if you didn't already have it. Um, but it kind of surprised me where it said, uh, oh, we are going to deactivate right. Flash on January 12th, which is interesting because um, even though I've taken all my sites down, that was a New Year's Day project for me, um, I still actually secretly have all those sites up. <laughs> they basically <laughs> behave differently for me on my IP address than they right. do for the rest of the world. Right. And the reason for that is I'm in the middle of an archiving project. Knowing that you won't be able to use Flash to play these games anymore, and knowing that converting them to another format, like a standalone application format, would be a huge task for me to do that really wouldn't have much benefit beyond archiving. Uh, I decided to video record, uh, you know, screen capture myself playing the games and talk about the game so I can give uh, bits of information about how the game is developed, you know, um, you know, things about like where, you know, the influences for the game and things like that, kind of DVD commentary kind of thing while I played the game. And I wouldn't have really a way to play these games in the future, but I would have these videos. I'd be able to look and say, oh, remember that game? Well, here's a 10 minute video of me playing it and talking about it while I'm playing. So at least I could see what it looked like. You can get an idea right. of the graphics. And I, you know, I've got like 200 of these games to do that on. <laughs> I'm, about, I'm about 10 into that 200. Oh dear. Uh, and that was gonna be a project I just continued to work on, maybe a few every weekend. But I'm worried now that on January 12th that I won't be able to run any of these games, even myself on my uh, my browser. So that would really put a put a you know a problem in there. Uh, running the games otherwise is difficult. I Flash isn't made anymore as an application for development, but they do make a, an app called Animate, which is the successor to Flash. In other words, they at one point changed the name Flash to Animate. <laughs> and you can um, open, I can open up all the source files in Animate. Running them is tricky because there have been changes to the software and I might get some error messages, some right. command is depreciated and some others, you know, doesn't work the same. And maybe I don't have the same fonts I had back when I originally created the game and things like that. So it's not going to be as easy to try to get the games working uh, in that format, but I may be, may be forced to. It's kind of sad. I, I 
I, I don't know. I, I wish I, I'd be okay if they really like, you know, said we'll deactivate these, but here's a kind of a backdoor. If you really need to run right. something, right. Um, there's a bunch of check boxes and things you could do to, you know, whatever. Um, and that allows you to now, uh, view flash content. I know that, um, as I understand it, uh, Microsoft is actually going to be removing flash components in an upcoming windows update. Yeah. So uh, it's actually at that level where they're, they're taking stuff off your system. Uh, I know that, you know, the browsers in, in Chrome's case, they have it built in and it would be interesting if, as you say, they just sort of had um, a secret setting or a not so secret setting uh, that would allow them to turn it back on again. Yeah. Uh, I, if you, if you specifically ask for it, it could be developer mode for all I care, but the point being there that um, since it is contained within the browser and it does take additional steps that the average person isn't going to bother with, uh, then uh, yeah, why not? Exactly. Right now, if I run Chrome on my Mac, I get a banner at the top. As soon as I launch Chrome that says flash player will no longer be supported after December, 2020, a big turn off button. Mm-hmm and a learn more button. The the turn off button basically simply disables the plugin, which was already something that was available before. Mm-hmm. And that was actually how it worked in Safari too. It was basically disabled by default, but you could enable it if you if you you know went through the steps. Right. Um I, I don't know. It'll be interesting. I, I mean, I guess, you know, on the one hand, part of me is like, well, hey, less work for me. I just, but, you know, it'll be, <laughs> it, it'll be a shame because I know right. at some point, I know, you know, a year, five, 10 years from now, there'll be some game I'll be like, oh, I really wish there was a way for me to see that game again. Right. Um, yeah. So that that's going to be a shame. Now, my, my life suddenly got a lot simpler. I removed nine websites. <laughs> Um, and they all redirect to a, uh, I, I, I still have three websites left that are not flash based. They're HTML based. So, you know, a, because during this period, uh, the last 10 years, um, the scripting for web pages, also known as JavaScript or HTML five became much more sophisticated and way better, way better uh, in terms of performance. Matter of fact, it is now way better than flash originally was when flash came out. Right. Performance wise. So at some point I started converting some of the games I wanted to keep around to using just JavaScript and not relying on flash at all. And I, uh, I, you know, so those three sites are still around and will continue for the foreseeable future. Maybe, maybe even get updates and from time to time. Um, and so I have now redirects to go to a page that say, you know, here are these three places you can still play web games. I also have redirects that go to the, apps because some of those games i've adapted into mobile apps mm-hmm. uh so a lot of redirects from nine sites but that made up the bulk of the websites i was actually maintaining uh i have a handful of websites that are kind of personal projects you know blogs and a sure. personal page that has a bio on it that kind of thing and then basically i've got my main website that is you know promotes my apps and things like that and MacMost. And that's it. Mm-hmm. I've gone from probably maintaining at least 25, maybe 35 websites down to probably in the last few years, more like 15 or so. And now I'm down to like three. <laughs> I aspire to uh, to your focus. It's funny. Uh, 
I'll talk about later. I ended up actually creating another website the other day. But uh, as I do every year, like January 1st, pretty much, uh, just so that it's on the next year's books, I go through all of the domains that I own and mm. then um, renew the ones that are going to uh, expire anytime during the year. Or it's also at that time where I make the call, right? I just say, you know what? Yeah, I had this. Do- I've owned this domain forever. I've not done anything with it. I'm not going to do anything with it. Let it go. And uh, so, yeah, that happened. Uh, I think I I let four of my 55 domains go, but then I ended up purchasing two more. So, you know, it's a, it's a net win, but it's a very slow, slow bit of progress. The more important thing I suspect is more along the lines of, as you say, sites worth maintaining. Um, And the new site of course was an additional WordPress installation, which I now have to maintain. Uh, But I do need to take a look at some of the other sites that I've got that are still running WordPress sites that just aren't really worth the effort anymore and should probably get mm-hmm. taken down and redirected to someplace. So, you know, it's funny, you mentioned, um, as you were talking about the, uh, uh, flash and your impact on the development of flash and flash games, you mentioned that you had written, you know, so many different books mm-hmm. and it dawned on me that When I'm learning something, when I start doing something, I do what I'm sure you, what you do, and I'm sure what I expect a lot of other people do is you grab the book, you type in the example, you make the example work, uh, you know, the example, it's kind of sort of closest to whatever problem it is you're trying to solve. And then you start iterating on the code you have. You don't Mm -hmm. start over. You just keep working on that example uh, and turn that into whatever it is you're trying to do. I think that uh, (laughs) much like the supply chain we've talked about earlier, the Example code that goes into programming books and now websites mm. uh, is highly, highly undervalued because it is the starting point for so many different programs and projects and programmers. So as you say, the code that you wrote as an example for a book is probably in a couple dozen different games simply because that's how the, that's how the game authors, you know, used, they used your book to either learn the language or solve a problem that they were coming up with and, uh, and just copied your code. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And who knows, maybe it's even jumped languages. You know, there's probably some examples of Python coding for games that from somebody that maybe learned action script coding from one of my books. And now they're doing it in some way that I kind of just like thought of off the top of my head. Oh, here's a good way to demonstrate this. And and I was influenced in turn by books I learned on basic programming, of course, in the in the early 80s, yep. and how to do things. Uh, so. So, yeah, yep. yeah. <laughs> like I said, the book authors, man, they're they're under underrepresented or undervalued collection of folks mm-hmm. <laughs> just because they've had such a dramatic uh, supply chain impact on on software today yeah supply chain yep yep so what's what's on your cool list today well i have something completely off brand because <laughs> usually <laughs> i am talking about like a cool if it's a tv show it's something really like tech related right you know sure. sci-fi or a book that's like really sci-fi or something like that here's something that i could i tried to find a connection <laughs> to you know being a tech enthusiast and there is none there's really really no connection at all. i can think of one but we'll get to that go ahead okay well my 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 the thing that i kind of 
have been enjoying for the last few weeks for really no reason. I can't understand why I like it, but I do, <laughs> uh, is the TV show Cobra Kai, which, <laughs> which is, it doesn't even seem like he was, why would Gary even like that? But, uh, I mean, I, you know, I guess I was the right age. I did see the karate kid movie, the mm-hmm. original, you know, when I was a kid or whatever. And, and so I remember it and I, I'm sure I saw, you know, all the original movies and then, you know, I was intrigued by the idea of a TV show with a main character is not necessarily, I mean, one of the two main characters is Daniel from the original movie, but the real main character is actually Johnny, the bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. The, the bad kid from the original. And that's the one that's kind of, he's, you know, he's, he's the one at the top of the list of characters and it's, you know, current day and what, where are these characters? What are they doing now? And then how does uh karate enter into their lives again um and also of course there are a lot of kids because there's a whole new generation mm-hmm. including their children uh that are at just the right age now to uh, be experiencing some of the same things and it's just you know it's strange because i had no idea that the third season actually came out on new year's day when i originally started watching it in the middle of december mm-hmm. i just kind of said oh, okay i've seen it let me just try the first episode and then i got hooked and then when I was done season two, I was like, all right, so how long do I have to wait for season three? Oh, it comes out in a couple of days. How convenient. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it's really interesting because uh, you don't realize the original movie and movies in general, a lot of times have to be very black and white, like no time for, for subtext and in looking at the gray areas of the characters and such, uh, whereas TV could go into that. And this show really does go into that. uh, Like right away, one of the things that happens is that kids are getting bullied just like in the original, uh, you know, movie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Johnny, the bad kid from the original is helping this kid who's getting bullied. And then he helps and some of the other kids that are getting bullied as well and te- by teaching them karate so they can stand up to their bullies. Uh, but pretty soon, the kids that know karate become the bullies. <laughs> right. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, pretty soon, there's some pretty epic fights and lots of violence going on between kids that at the beginning of the show were basically nerds um, who wouldn't hurt a fly. Interesting. But now have been basically armed with the knowledge of karate. And there's a lot of that gray areas at first i thought well that's just kind of natural when you when you have to a lot of uh you know minutes to fill but it obviously is a theme of this i mean even down to the point of you know in, uh, it's brought up in the original movie the kick that wins the fight at the end of the movie that's mm-hmm. the big deal um was that a legal kick because that was brought up in the series that that actually a uh, kick to the face like that was actually supposed to be illegal in tournaments like that so right how did the good guy get away with it so there's lots of gray areas especially because the bad guy is kind of a good guy now but then he kind of crosses the line back and forth a few times the good guy daniel from you know uh, played by ralph macchio from the you know original series is mm-hmm. all the original actors from uh you know from the movies that are brought back right um he kind of crosses over a couple times too i mean it's fascinating uh just to be able to go and really start to think about uh, some of the things deeper. Anyway, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, and I'm now almost on the the third season, which just came out on New Year's Day. And I, you know, I'm recommending it to, to people because it's just surprised the heck out of me on uh, it, that it's very compelling television. Cool. Yeah. It's funny. Um, you know, you mentioned that you 
got the, you know, watched the first episode, see what it's like, and then you got hooked. Yeah. That's kind of what happened to us uh, last year with uh, Lucifer. We've been watching oh, okay. Lucifer that way. And, you know, we're five seasons behind, so we had lots and lots to catch up on. And now we're, we're current, and there, it, Lucifer comes back, I think, sometime this month or this year. Yeah, later, yeah. Right? Uh, but we also had the other experience. What happened to us with Lucifer was something that we were looking at a different show. We were giving a different show the trial run. Uh, and I think at that time, we didn't even make it through the first episode. Said, nope, nope, nope. This is just not for us. Mm -hmm. uh, what's funny is that that happened again last night with um, another show that shall remain nameless, but it's a new one this year. And we had high hopes because of who was in it. And it was like, no, man, they made some really bad choices hmm. um, about how they were going to do the show. Um, and uh, we just said, nope. Nope, nope, that one's not calling to us either. Huh. The other thing we've been watching, uh, we just finished actually uh, two nights ago, uh, was The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. They had their final season huh. uh, on Netflix here. Uh, it released, I think, the day before yours did it. They just released, I think, on, on the 31st. Um, so we binged that series uh, just because we'd been you know, watching it from the beginning. So that was kind of fun. They did the thing where they brought... Um, you may or may not remember, but they had, or, I'm sorry, Sabrina the Teenage Witch was a TV show for a while. Right. It was a comedy starring Melissa Joan Hart. Um, she did not come into this, uh, this reboot, but her two aunts from that show made appearances in uh, two episodes is two episodes of um, this final season of the new show, and it was kind of fun. They they actually worked them in pretty well. It, you know, they're recognizable faces to anybody who's seen the who has seen the original series. So that was kind of fun. Uh, the, what I was going to mention uh, is kind of in that same vein, and actually, honestly, it's it's my tie-in for Cobra Kai. Uh, I love my Roku. I I. It's funny, a year or more ago when I made the decision to to cut the cable, or in my case, cut the satellite, um, it felt like kind of a crapshoot. I mean, we were there were probably going to be things that we couldn't get, or it would be too expensive, or this, that, or the other thing. And um, I mean, until like three weeks ago, the only piece of the puzzle that uh, we were missing was HBO Max. And... Roku and HBO apparently came to some kind of agreement. So that's there now too. So everything that we had watched before and a bunch more are now available to us on this silly little, I mean, you know what they look like, right? They're glorified USB sure. sticks. Yeah. Um, and I'm paying less than I paid for my satellite. Uh, and it's just, and, and the, the experience is good. I've, I've mentioned on this podcast before that, uh, the one commonality between all of the streaming apps is that they all pretty much suck. Um, they have horrid UIs. There's no consistency between them. Uh, you know, it's not at all obvious how to do this or that, uh, when you switch from one app to the other, but, uh, if you can get past that, uh, oh my gosh, there's just so much available and, mm -hmm. and so much that we can be watching. It's, um, it's, it really is a wealth of riches here uh, these days with, with online streaming. Um, and the rumor that I heard this morning, by the way, uh, on, or no, yesterday, on uh, the Wall Street Tech Podcast, Wall Street Journal Tech Podcast, um, is that 
Roku is apparently making a bid for Quibi's assets. Oh, yeah, the shows they made, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Quibi, of course, again, for our listener, is uh, a streaming service that essentially failed. Uh, They got a ton of money. They launched. They intended to be mobile only, mobile first. Uh, And apparently, people just weren't ready to sign up for yet another one. I don't know if it was their technology or the timing, because people are certainly going through this overwhelm of so many different streaming services. But they shut down, I think it was last month or the month before. But they had created a bunch of content that was exclusive to their platform, and they are now looking to sell that off, uh, potentially to recoup some of the uh, some of the investments. Uh, so I, that'll be kind of interesting to see what happens to that. But um, but yeah, there's just so much, and yes, being able to you know look at any of these on on any of the machines that I've got the Roku uh, got a Roku plugged into, and on my laptops and desktops, it's just. Yep. Life is good when it comes mm. to streaming. It's almost too good. Yep. What you going to plug? Oh, uh, let's see. What do I have? Oh, I did a, um, I did a video on New Year's Day uh, on playing classic games on your Mac. And I actually surprised myself while I'm doing the video because all I intended to show was that you can go to Internet Archive and they have a place on the website where uh, you could play classic arcade games. Mm-hmm. And basically it's a Speaking of you know JavaScript running in a browser to play right. games, uh, they have an emulator um, which just runs on the page. You don't have to do anything; it just it just runs. And they have various uh, arcade games emulated, um, and you could you know play Joust, for instance, in your in your web browser just by mm-hmm. going to Internet Arcade. Really easy. But then while making the video and basically done, saying here you know here's what I wanted to say, I thought, well, well, wait a minute. What other games can you play? Uh, I had actually thought of a game and realized it's not an arcade game, but it's probably like it was a DOS game. So then I found that there's a huge archive of DOS games also right. run through an emulator right. on Internet Archive. <laughs> and then I said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Is there a Mac archive? And sure enough, there was. And there's early Mac uh, system emulator, like system seven or whatever. And a lot of the classic games that I played in the, uh, eighties and early nineties on the Mac were available to be played right there in the web browser. And then I jumped from that to the Atari, uh, to the Apple two and found that there was, there was the biggest <laughs> archive of them all, <laughs> just tons of, uh, Apple two games. And matter of fact, since it's emulating the Apple two, um, you're actually, you know, it loads a disk up and some of those things were just emulating simple little utilities. So you're able to like go into the utility and then just hit, you know, whatever number was for exit, you know, one was like, do this, two is do that three exit. And then you're suddenly at the basic prompt and you can oh. just pretend you're at an Apple two in your Apple two. Yeah. Yeah. It was yes. like, okay, let me clear all the lines and, <laughs> and 10 print hello world. Hey, it works, you know? And then, um, so it was kind of an interesting like rabbit hole that I ended up going down uh, with that video. Even other systems like uh, the Commodore 64, the Atari 800, they they all have emulators um, with a lot of different games at Internet Archive, and you can just play them right in your web browser. Some of them are frustrating to get working uh, because you know usually the developers or you know the the, the curators probably at Internet Archive basically say, here's the emulator, here's the ROM, put them together, it boots, move on. Right. And then you get there and you're like, okay, so what key controls the joystick? Right. How do you insert a <laughs> coin? You know, And sometimes it's like trying to figure out how to actually get them to work. Right. Um, 
is really frustrating. But uh, you know, once you figure it out, uh, if it can be figured out, because some of them I never could, um, it's it's really cool to be able to play these games or emulate these systems in your web browser without you know the complexities of installing an emulator, right. finding ROMs and system ROMs and installing them and doing all this stuff. It's just no, just a web page. Click and you're there. So I got bad. a video on that. Too bad Kay isn't here because he didn't. That's I mean that's his passion. Yeah. Um, is is these older computers, mostly Atari, but he probably would have said, "Yep, yep, I knew about oh, it." Oh, I'm what sure. Are you about? I, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure he knows. There maybe even was involved. Maybe he's probably responsible for half of them, yeah. Yeah. some some of the Atari 800 stuff. Yeah. So um, I was going to point folks at uh, that new site that I alluded to earlier, seventakeaways.com. Mm -hmm. um, uh, either the number seven or spell it out. I bought both domains. Um, so here's the thing. I realized, I don't know, I've been disappointed with myself over the last year for the amount of uh, reading that I actually haven't been doing. I, I used to be a voracious reader and I haven't really done a lot lately. Uh, and I wanted to come up with a way to change that. What I realized is that publishing a weekly newsletter is one of those things that forced me to um, have a deadline. And yep, um, you know, Ask Leo is up to 842 mm. deadlines that I've made if, since I don't know 2005 or something like that. It's a pretty it's a pretty impressive streak, even for me. Um, and uh, I've also been doing you know like not all news is bad, which is a daily deadline. Although I do those a few days in advance, there you know it's a, another thing. And I've have, I've missed a couple of those. So my mental model turned out to be newsletters are deadlines to make you do things. And uh, I decided, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up um, a site with a newsletter that people can subscribe to. And last check, I think 80, 83 people are on there, uh, where my intent is each day to read something substantive. In other words, probably not fiction, but something nonfiction, probably entrepreneurial or business-related or self-improvement or who knows what. Um, and just come up with a takeaway, right? I'm, I'm, one of my my philosophies on most nonfiction books is it was worth it if I could come up with one valuable takeaway. Uh, so I'm going to collect those. And every day I collect them. And then once a week, um, they get bundled into a post that gets sent out as a newsletter. And it really is for me, but I'm hoping that it's valuable for other folks as well. Anyway, seventakeaways.com. There's like three issues out there already you could look at. And if you're interested in signing up, be my guest. Uh, like I said, it's it's a random and eclectic uh, selection of things that I run across throughout the day. And maybe you'll find some of them interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Yeah. Cool. So I think that pretty much wraps us up for another week. Yeah, good start to the year. It is. Show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh123. If you've got a comment or a question, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH Podcast, or you can always leave a comment on the show notes page. We absolutely read every one of them. As always, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. All the best for 2021, and we will see you here again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>